and welcome to another evening of Frank Conversation here on Hard Copy, coming to you from our studios in Abuja. I'm Maupe Ogun Yusuf. Nigeria's multidimensional poverty index has continued to generate controversy as both the federal and state government have been trading blames on who should bear responsibility for the alarmingly high number of people who are suffering from the effects of poverty in all of its dimensions. 133 million people in total, with about 72% of this figure residing in Nigeria's rural areas. The federal government believes states have spent more resources and focus on bigger infrastructure to the detriment of citizens, whilst the states say the federal government has not lived up to its primary responsibility of security, which has affected the rural populace more. Add to this an equally disturbing figure of Nigeria's out-of-school population, which has put at roughly 20 million children by new figures from UNESCO, a dramatic rise from UNICEF's 2018 figures, which had put it at roughly 10 million children. This is a backdrop against which Nigeria's next elections, which are less than 100 days from now, will be run. The next set of leaders will need to convincingly sell what their party will do differently to put Nigeria on the path of exponential growth and her people on the path of prosperity. But what really needs to be done? And what needs to change for this to happen? Obiageli Ezigwesili, Nigeria's former Minister of Education, or former Vice President for Africa at the World Bank, and the Chair of Fixed Politics and founder the School of Politics, Policy and Governance, SPPG, is our guest tonight. Ma'am, welcome to Hard Copy. Thank you so very much, Maupe. It's good to have you back here. It's been quite a while we saw you on this set, but good to have you here. Lovely to see you. Well, the times are dire, we must say. The figures which we're seeing from both the National Bureau of Statistics, not pretty. The figures from UNESCO, not pretty as well. 20 million out-of-school children. As a former Minister of Education, I wonder how that hit you. It did. Um, as far back as uh, 2006, April 2007, when I ceased being a Minister of Education and went back to the United States, uh, at the World Bank, the reforms that uh, we did in education, what well, we uh, titled those reforms responding to crisis in education, mm. because the crisis were multidimensional. Mm. At that time. At that time. But out of school children number was um, about um, seven, a little above seven million. And yet, I was so angry at that number. I felt, no, we shouldn't have this, this kind of a situation where we have children in millions that are, should be in the classroom, but are not, because that's the definition of out-of-school children. And so we went to work immediately using the instrumentality of the Universal Basic Education Commission and the fund that we have there. Uh, which goes directly to states as counterparts, funding. Since edu exchange, uh, basic education is not the remit of federal government. government. But if you want to have an equalization principle so that you don't have one part of the country not caring about education and the impact of it affecting the general ultimately, you have to, as a center, 
figure instruments through which you would encourage all states to pay attention to a basic good like education. So what we did was to unlock that as much as possible so that it could work better. And we did uh, design uh, the kinds of interventions that would use the um, leaders with moral authority in the neighborhoods where people were less likely to choose going to school. And we saw this increase uh, reduced the number by at least half a million. Was it in terms of the funding? It was not just the funding, it yeah. was also the programs. Because funding is hardly ever the primary solution to these problems. You have to identify some of the bottlenecks. A major bottleneck is that in the northern part of the country, there is not this very strong vote for what is considered Western education. And so uh, you often found that uh, people, parents found really no particular reason why their uh, children should go to school. We needed a kind of enlightenment program that could get through to them. And you needed the kinds of people with the moral agency to deliver those kinds of uh, messages. So worked with traditional rulers, worked in the case of uh, the North especially, um, the girls were always more than the boys. So you had three boys in school to a ratio of one girl in school. For every three boys in school, you had one girl in school. So you needed to improve that. And so the idea that when mothers saw girls who had gone to school who were now teachers, it made a difference in their wanting to send their daughters to school. So all of those kinds of interventions, one of the interventions, interestingly, was the idea of just having water borehole in a school so that the children would go to fetch water and in the process, see, see other, other children who are in school and feel like, I should be here too. It made a difference. It was during a time that the design of the school uh, uh, feeding program commenced through the same UBEC as a way of sort of triggering that important interest in education. And that, even for the one session that coincided with the period I was Minister of Education, we saw an uptick. Some 500,000 uh, uh, children that were on the street, not going to school, entered into the school, into, into schools. Mm. So it's a problem that can be solved. Mm. If it is not solved, it is likely because there's a dropping of the ball. Mm. And often this dropping of the ball may just come in the form of not following what empirical analysis have identified to be the key drivers that you must address. I don't know if you've been monitoring whatever, whatever other solutions, you know, subsequent administrations after yours, you know, have it served to this particular problem. Uh, but I do know that it's something only recently when a discussion with former president Olusha Gorbachev, whom you served with, and he was really troubled by mm -hmm. those figures. And yes. he, he was saying something to the effect that uh, we've taken away agency from these people to be useful citizens, or from, from these children to be useful to themselves and to contribute their quota to nation building. Uh, drawing that trajectory for me was really, really deep um, in terms of what the effect of this will be 
on an entire generation, you know, coming up right after. I mean, 10 million, 20 million people without the agency, without the awareness of what their role is um, as citizens of Nigeria. I'm wondering, when, when you look at, you know, what has been done successively after your administration, where would you say people have dropped the ball? Education is not an activity. It's a system. And the system has to follow systemic approach to solving the problems that you identify. So it means that um, if you already have some analytical um, foundation for the problem that you seek to solve, you better not drop the ball in continuing to emphasize that analytical foundation. What do I mean by this? It was during my time as Minister of Education that the idea of the Nigerian Education Management Information System was really designed to work so that you could have the data that you're constantly looking at. So what instrument did we use as effectively as possible during my time? It's known as the National Council on Education. It's the meeting that brings together the Minister of Education together with commissioners of education and other players in education, including the wider society. And during my time, we said private sector needs to be in that meeting as much as possible so that they could understand, we could understand, we could hear from them, channel the information around the, 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 the link between education and economy and labor and skills. So, these kinds of things are very important, and you have to be scientific about the way you're approaching this. You can't simply just make policies without analysis. I believe that the greatest tragedy that happened over the last couple of years leading to what we currently see is that a lot of anecdote has been driving policymaking in Nigeria. Right now, you're still in the line of education. You've just chosen it in an unusual field. You're now the chair um, of Fixed Politics and uh, the founder of the School of Politics, Policy, and Governance. Um, and it's not a field that is strange to you, uh, but I'm, I'm wondering, you have now graduated how many sets of people from that school? We graduated a class of 2021, mm -hmm. 166 of them. And um, we, no, 160 of them. And then 160 of them. And then the class of 2022, 20, just um, last October, mm -hmm. uh, we graduated 133 of them. Mm -hmm. And now the class of 2023 is in session. Okay. And uh, we have about uh, 230 of them in the class. But we're very, 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 very competitive and strict. So I'm, I'm looking at, you know, this, you are also no stranger to politics. You are no stranger to policy. You've done policy as minister and at different other levels. Um, and, and right now, I mean, 2019, you threw your hat in the political ring. Yes. Before then, you had been to the Harvard School mm -hmm. of Politics and Governance. Now, from what you know, in terms of you know you, the experience gathered in the classroom and you know what you saw mm -hmm. as presidential candidate, mm -hmm. what did you see that made you want to fix politics yes. through your experience? Such a brilliant question, Malque. Um, so 
getting into politics was the result of ultimate frustration that governance was consistently failing. And that if this failure continued, those of us who have had the privilege of the kind of education we have had and the kind of life that that education has given us will be totally foolish to ignore these failures. Because the truth is that the destabilization and the implosion of uh, ungoverned spaces will not only affect those who are in the poorer segment of society. That's why you would find that the elite of any society are conscious enough to ensure that governance enables people to constantly be lifted out of poverty. The trigger eventually was seeing two governments con consecutively fail just a nucleus of the society, those girls of Chibok who were abducted. One government fails them, the second one fails them again. And actually, they don't feel anything about it. Instead, they are angry that they are asked, they are asked to account for their citizens. That's not governance. So triggered by that ultimate frustration that here we are, a society that ought to care even more about the poorer segment of our population. Just carrying on like nothing happened, I decided, you know what? I'm gonna go and run for office. Perhaps it will send a signal that people like me who face the technical things, the policy things, and have such contempt for politics are not thinking right. Because Plato said, that those who think that politics is beneath them will ultimately be ruled by their inferiors. Some of that person put a twist on it and said, will be ruled by idiots. And so you look at, at the continent, you see the quality of the people who choose for politics, and you see why it is that Africa's best is not in Africa's politics. Wanted to send a signal that we should all care about politics. I went into politics. It was by going into politics that I realized that it was not just the matter of governance. It's actually upstream at the stage where it is still politics that a lot of the failure is already designed. So when you wait for governments to be elected and you start then to demand accountability from them, demand good governance from them, demand transparency from them, you ain't gonna get it. Because at the politics level, Things have already been stashed up, sewed up, that would make it impossible for governance to take the form that would be useful for the common good. I, I wonder if you go back now, assuming you were to throw your hat in again, what would you be doing differently? What would you be, be, be prepared for already that you would either say and say, I'm going to continue, or you might say, I'm going to withdraw. If ever you threw your hat in the ring again, will you withdraw or would you, would you see it through to the end? So one thing that would happen is that I would go into politics today mm -hmm. knowing that the electorate that is disengaged is not helpful to the cause of a person who steps out into politics 
on the basis of a desire for change. Today's electorate is not as disengaged as they were in 2019 and before. Are you getting the point? Mm -hmm. You see that our electorate, especially our young people and our women, are much more conscious. They are now tired of the failure. As of 2019, you didn't have the kind of groundswell of interest. You see the way people are agitating today. That is important for, your, for, for, for anyone who's going to run for office anywhere on our continent for change. The second thing is the regulatory environment has to be very competent, very capable, and very ethical, ready to give a few the space to operate on an equal basis with other candidates, including the incumbent. So for example, the change to the Electoral Act is an important regulatory and institutional context that changes the basis for your action, whether to run or not to run. And then the third part is that you need to have many more people who think like you in the political class that seeks to aspire into office. Because you alone, as one who would want to change the way things happen in politics and governance, would not sufficiently do it. So you can see that this is quite analytical. Mm -hmm. This is what created the concept in my research that I call the triangular pillars of democracy. Empowered and engaged electorate. One, a new political class of, that of ethical, competent, and capable people. Two, and then a regulatory context that is reformed to ensure a level playing field mm. and more transparency. So whilst, whilst the people are getting more engaged and, and uh, you know, more conscious of, you know, and asking questions of those who are governing them, and, you know, are more interested in those who want to take office, um, you know, there are key questions as to whether or not the deciders have changed. Give you an instance. Uh, zoning, for instance, mm. uh, it's, it's still a major factor in our politics, whether the candidate, whether it is a turn of the north or it is a turn of the south. Mm -hmm. Now, how do we begin to, first and foremost, what do you make of this, this subtle deciders? Uh, because whether or not we, we accept them, these things are still important yes. in a country as diverse as ours. And I am actually very open to these deciders at a certain stage of the democratic process. The reason is simple. We are a very fragile union. We have been. But some leaders have managed our fragility better than others. President Obasanjo, no matter how you come out on him, managed our fragility better in a lot of ways. President Buhari is the extreme end of mismanaging our union in terms of the diversity. And so here you have this spectrum of fragility and one has tended to the point where the country that we always saying we need to move it from country to nation no longer even has as such the status of a country. Because you find people quickly reclining to their ethnic cleavages at the drop of a hat. That is not 
what should be, right? But that is what we find. So what are the ways that societies find to create a movement in a gradual way toward this desideratum of having a society where it is simply, you want to run for office, you run for office, and that's it. Well, it means that you have to pay more attention to what people are saying about injustice, about feeling excluded, about feeling marginalized. And the political parties had actually done a fairly okay job, especially like the PDP, of saying that we would have a custom of a rotation amongst our various zones as a way of ensuring some, that measure of inclusion, that measure of parity across the zones. And that is something that societies use. I, I know that in recent times you have also been, I don't want to say it's not been an outright endorsement, but at least we have an idea of where it is that you would most likely vote if you were to vote in the presidential election. Mm -hmm. uh, you see, given some sum of support to mm -hmm. the presidential candidate of the Labour Party. Mm -hmm. I do not know how you felt when you also saw the, uh, will I say, the back and forth between himself and the current governor of Anambra State, whom mm -hmm. you also know very well mm -hmm. and will be also help put his cabinet together, mm -hmm. arrange his transition. Um, first, how did that make I you feel? I didn't put his cabinet together. Well, maybe you didn't. <laughs> I well, helped with his transition. transition. Yes. <laughs> how did that make you feel? You know, I, I kind of felt that both of them uh, could resolve whatever personal issues they have uh, mm -hmm. between them. Uh, but to the specific uh, uh, issue of presidential candidacy, what I said on that interview, and which I repeat everywhere that I am asked, is that <laughs> I don't even, I mean, like, I look at the, the other two candidates, and I rate them immediately on the basis of what we know. And for the three candidates, they are publicly available information mm -hmm. with which to do the rating. So after I've done my rating, there is absolutely no way I would leave and a Peter will be and vote for any of the other two candidates. If you took the, on the analytical perspective uh, and looked at the showings of what is likely to happen in terms of uh, the, where the strong appetite for change is coming with the youthful segment of the population, it is significant. The youthful segment of our population are moving in a direction of saying, we want a different Nigeria. You must, in your analysis, remember that they form more than 60% of the electorate, okay? Now, if you looked at the fact that women are more inclined toward the presidency of Epitaubi, that's important to note because women make up about 51%. I think they're almost at par. Sometimes it's 48, 49 to women and to men, and then to men, 51, and then it varies. But that is an important analysis to take on board. If you took from the perspective of the various zones of this country and the appetite they have for an inclusive approach to governance, you would find that you cannot dismiss a Peter will be prospect. And the reason, even more so that you should not, is that this is the first time that a third party is actually showing up on the radar in the way that Labour Party has lately shown up. And that could mean 
that even if we don't have an outright win, that he's going to force a rerun. And when a rerun is possible, all things are possible. Did you reach out to we Professor Soludo after that? I certainly did. And he knew that I would reach out to him. <laughs> Have they been able to reconcile now? Do you well, know? you saw them. You know, these are politicians. They figure out how to, you know, solve their problems. I think that the most important thing is for the electorate to not be distracted. Mm -hmm. I really desire to see the Nigerian citizens finally vote for themselves. For too long, you've had to deal with empty promises. I mean, who could have told you that an APC administration would waste eight years in what we have seen, whether it's on the economic growth indicators or human capital indicators, even with critical infrastructure, except for, you know, say the train. I would give, although the trains now aren't working, or the matter of almighty security, mm. the security the tackling corruption, I mean, look, even before now, I gave a score of F to the administration. So this is not something new that I am saying. Thank you for coming on Hard Topic. Thank you for inviting me. Well, that's the program tonight. But do share your thoughts with us on what you watched here using the handle showing on your screen. Thank you for watching. I'm Mao Pueo Good night.